Until we are all free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. What a slogan. You're listening to Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. That line was, of course, Mario Savio's back in the 1960s. And uh, full marks to anyone who can recognise where the sample about sabotage is from without Googling. But could those lines, should those lines, really be the credo of the left today in a world in which technology seems to occupy every aspect of our life to the point that it might even be remaking our bodies and reordering the way that we think? What if we rejected the fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies that Le Guin talked about in that part of our intro? Wouldn't that make us Luddites? But maybe that wouldn't be such a bad thing. What if Luddism, in fact, provided a far better basis for a politics of the left than a too easy identification with technologies made primarily in the interests of people who own and run things? What if we were to rescue the reputation of the frame breakers and use them to reveal a hidden history of sabotage and scepticism about technology that unites worker militants in car plants in Italy with the hacker culture of the early internet? What if the ecological crisis calls on us to reclaim the cause of the only good king, King Ludd? Those claims are just part of the argument of Gavin Muller's new book called Breaking Things at Work, The Luddites Are Right About Why You Hate Your Job. So this week, we're assembling the invisible army of Ned Ludd. Tell me where you're speaking to us from. I'm speaking to you from uh, from sunny Amsterdam, uh, Netherlands, uh, where, where I live. I am uh, a lecturer in the University of Amsterdam in the uh, Media Studies Department. We should probably just start with the frame breakers, right? And so you start the book by making the argument that to be a good Marxist is to also be a Luddite. And that's a claim that I agree with. 
Um, but many would find paradoxical. So can you tell us who were the Luddites and I guess what's so salient about this wave of sort of early 19th century militancy? Yeah, so the Luddites were, they were weavers uh, and other textile workers uh, in the north and midlands of England uh, in the early 19th century uh, and were sort of uh, faced with a problem when uh, new technologies of textile production such as stocking frames and gig mills were introduced. Uh, these were skilled laborers who, you know, apprenticed and and were f- members of guilds. Uh, in fact, their industry was uh, by law protected uh, by the crown. They were very quick to recognize that these new technologies, which obviated a lot of the skills that were required to produce textiles, uh, were a threat to their livelihoods. And in turn, because they were members of uh, communities uh, that were all everyone w- was a part of these industries. There was really a, a kind of existential threat to uh, th- their entire kinds of their entire communities, their entire way of life. Uh, and so, what they did was they mobilized uh, against this new form of production. Uh, and most famously, uh, they smashed machines. Right? They would uh, uh, kind of go on these night raids. Uh, break into factories uh, and use large hammers to kind of destroy uh, some of these machines that were uh, making it possible to produce textiles using um, less skilled labor, typically typically women and children. But they, they engage in a, in a variety of different practices, actually, uh, including, uh, uh, you know, they 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 were not just uh, uh, you know sort of insurrectionaries. They were they had reformist practices as well. They petitioned the government. Right uh, for a while, they thought they had the law on their side. Uh, they also wrote uh, some threatening letters. Uh, there's a there's a f- fantastic compilation of them. Uh, if you're if you're looking for some beach reading, <laughs> they they wrote letters to uh, to both to members of parliament as well to as to factory owners to uh, to to kind of threaten them to scare them to say you know we're we're, we're watching you we're not going to let this continue um, uh, you've been warned uh, and, and actually some factory owners took those threats very seriously and ended up saying okay you know we're not going to use these machines anymore you you guys win uh, others you know of course hardened their resistance. Uh, so these Luddite rebellions against uh, this technology uh, escalated uh, to the point where you had um, nightly raids. The crown uh, at this point starts to get kind of interested in what's going on here. Uh, you, I think it's important to note that this is uh, this like second decade of the 19th century uh, when the Luddite rebellions are happening is a kind of a period of global rebellion. Uh, against uh, primarily the British Empire. Uh, so you have, uh, of course, in um, the United States, uh, it re-enters a conflict. The UK, you have uh, Napoleonic Wars on the continent. You have rebellions in, um, in the slave colonies in the Caribbean. Uh, so this is not uh, an easy time. And, uh, and yet, uh, the Luddites were taken so seriously that uh, at one point there were more soldiers deployed into uh, the Midlands of England than there were fighting Napoleon on the continent. Uh, so um, essentially, uh, the state decided that production had to kind of proceed apace. They needed these, uh, they needed textiles uh, primarily to outfit soldiers. Um, and so uh, they couldn't uh, kind of tolerate 
this rebellion. And they were also concerned that the Luddites would link up with other forms of sort of anti-state kinds of insurgencies and underground movements, uh, such as uh, uh, some of the the, uh, people tied to uh, uh, Scotland and things like that. So, uh, so yeah, essentially we need to, we need to, 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 to get order, um, back and they, they crush them. Um, although it took a lot longer than anticipated. One thing that really impressed me when I started researching the Luddites, and I think one reason why they're remembered is, um, they didn't go down quickly or quietly or easily. They had remarkable practices of solidarity. So even when, um, you know, individual, uh, insurgents would be caught, it was very hard to get them to confess and to 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 uh, reveal who their conspirators were. So it took quite a while for authorities to roll up the movement to really find the leaders, identify them, and prosecute them, um, and etc. Um, it was also widely popular, uh, where we had they had strong community support uh, from from uh, you know from all all sorts of different quarters, right? And this is not a, a time when um, the the central government is exceedingly popular um, among uh, um, the working people. So so I think that's a main reason why I think it's uh, they're remembered, uh, but they're also remembered you know pejoratively. So this rebellion is uh, to be a luddite, right? Is to is 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 a is an insult, right? It, it's it indicates you have a kind of irrational uh, rejection of technology, and that is indeed uh, for many people the way to interpret. Um, this Luddite rebellion, right? These are people who are at the kind of dawn of mass production uh, that engage in a struggle that was defeated. And so they seem like the sort of enemies of progress or uh, engage in something like extraordinarily futile, right? Um, and so that if you're a Luddite, if you're considered a Luddite, you're you're equally kind of engaged in this kind of specious uh, rejection of inevitable progress, right? And I think that my inclination here was in 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 reevaluating this, and I'm not the first person to to reevaluate this. Many notable people have, uh, such as uh, historians E.P. Thompson and and uh, uh, Eric Hobsbawm as well. Is that I think we are faced with a kind of similar question today about uh, technology. Is that is is it unfolding in a kind of way that is inevitable or are there ways to strike back at it? And what can we learn from movements, including the Luddites, where they d- really did focus not only on uh, kind of traditional sort of left forms of uh, politics and organizing and activism, uh, but where they really focused on technologies themselves as uh, as something that they that really had to be kind of put in the crosshairs of of political activity, uh, and so that's was one kind of motivation. I think there's also you know it's a, it's also it's a, there's also I will admit a polemical motivation as well, right? I mean there's something to to kind of reclaim a sort of um, this kind of pejorative designation um, is to also I think um, is provide ideally a little bit provocative, but I think it's also to, um, you know, to force, uh, to, to really kind of force this question, this larger question of what is the relationship of technology to, uh, to, to creating a kind of uh, more egalitarian uh, uh, kind of politics and, and all overall more um, egalitarian kind of uh, society. 
there are sort of two immediate prongs which seem kind of important to know. I mean, I guess one is that, that as you say, there is this kind of long, um, well, not so long, but certainly a 20th century tradition of reevaluating the Luddites, but also, you know, there are political movements that, that spring up in the name or get called Luddite or get called Neo-Luddite, which are, you know, from, from Ted Kaczynski through to sort of anarcho-primitivism, right? And I think, you know, I mean, obviously you're doing something different here and I think it's probably important to stake out the the ground you know just just it just like quite clearly there um and i guess the other one is that it's just like i was thinking about um you quote hobsbawm in the book who's one of these people who reevaluates this movement and says this this was a time before the formation of the labor movement um and when enlightened orderly bureaucratic strikes were not yet possible and like and, and in that line there's this as if these are all words that he approves of very strongly right they enlightened orderly bureaucratic I'm not sure I would quite agree <laughs> with that. Uh, and, but very few of the episodes that you describe, either among the Luddites or perhaps their modern inheritors, fit into this kind of, you know, sort of 20th century pattern of kind of orderly labor disputes. Um, so I wonder if that, that also makes the, the kind of Luddites increasingly salient today. I mean, it's, a, it's such a lovely um, quotation. And, and the way I kind of interpret um, that, that little bit of Hobsbawm is he's talking about um, what you know, autonomous Marxists call class composition, right? So the Luddites were, uh, you know, they weren't organized around uh, a kind of system of mass production in the way that people were later in the 20th century. They weren't the mass worker, right? They were a different kind of worker. You know, they they often worked from home. They had skills that um, made them work independently. Um, so the forms that their labor struggles take would, would necessarily be different. You also, of course, don't have the same kind of state apparatus as you have in the 20th century, where um, oftentimes the state can act as a kind of broker uh, between labor and capital. It's uh, clearly taking the so- taking one side in a, in a, in a, in a violent way. And, and I think this is another, maybe a little bit more submerged uh, reason for, for my thinking uh, through the Luddites and their, and their relevance today is um, I don't see, I, when I look at kind of contemporary class composition, of course, we're not in the early 19th century, uh, but we're we're also not in the mid twentieth century, right? Many workers are are, are quite atomized, uh, have like sort of low levels of political activity or or or, or kind of a conscious political organization, right? Unionization is quite low. Um, I'm American, so uh, often my reference points come from the U.S. Uh, although since I've moved to Europe, I'm trying to uh, broaden my perspective on that. But I think even if you look um, in other, in, so there's certainly union unionization rates are at a historic low in the United States and um, and they're they're lower than they have been in quite a few other places. So we might be looking at a situation here in the 21st century where yes, uh, where we're also enlightened bureaucratic strikes are like not necessarily <laughs> the kind of first technique, right, uh, that is going to, you know, is going to be on the agenda for a lot of workers because they're not part of unions, they're not part of these organizations. And yet, I think that they people are politicized uh, through their work and driven into forms of kind of uh, um, self-activity that's antagonistic to accumulation, right? I think that that, um, I don't want to describe it as spontaneous, but I think that that is something that happens. Um, And so that activity will manifest itself in other ways. And I think that um, a good kind of uh, politics is not uh, for, for, for radicals is not to kind of tisk tisk people for not 
engaging in the proper activity, but to actually understand why they're doing what they're doing and to see the content of what kinds of struggles they're engaging in. And I think if you look at the content of a lot of struggles today, you do see that they're they're pitched at contemporary technological apparatuses. They're not smashing um, stocking frames or gig mills, but uh, we're, we're we're having to subvert and and uh, navigate around and and uh, and hack and thwart uh, our our digital environments. Right, um, I've been trying to accumulate uh, all the ways that people are. are uh, we, uh, subverting Zoom these days, which like a kind of overnight became backbone of like the global uh, economy, at least in its sort of uh, white collar guise. So <laughs> with with many, many uh, kinds of fallout, right? Many people find these working conditions really terrible. They find themselves working more. Uh, they find themselves uh, having to deal with more uh, kind of household care. And they're also atomized from from their coworkers in, in a variety of ways. And yet, you know, la lada continua, right? So um, the struggle continues. And, and I think that that my interest is to try to find um, where those struggles are happening rather than kind of say, I have this kind of thing that they should be doing. If only they were doing that, how, how can we get people to do, um, to join a union or to unionize their workplace instead? Um, sure. I think those things are great, but I think you have to start with the actually existing struggles the way they are. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of, uh, there's a motivation here and to say like, let's take seriously, just like Hobsbawm takes seriously the fact that the struggles of the Luddites are a result of a particular class composition. Um, what is the class composition today and how do those struggles unfold? Actually, I think a lot of the some of the best work um, on class composition in the workplace is happening in the UK right now. You have some really, um, really dedicated uh, projects that are, I think, really uh, going to be very useful um, coming out in the next few years. Um, and I'm excited to see, uh, see where those go. And we'll find, I think, um, a lot of it focuses on technology. It's especially interesting to me because, like, the, the, what you're outlining here is essentially, and I think you say in, in your preface to the book, you you know, you give thanks to you know, what what is basically a, a pretty heretical tradition in some ways of of Marxism, and you're at pains to kind of like outline the, the fact that you know. I, you know, this intellectual tradition is not one that is is solely the the domain of the credentialed, right? That it emerges from kind of worker militants, from sort of self-taught theoreticians, people who engage in sabotage in their own workplaces, and and you know today even from from Facebook groups, one of which I think you mentioned in your uh, in your preface. Um, and I guess I just I just want to think a little bit about the technical way, the, the theoretical way that we approach technology, right? So you know, you you push back on on something that, that seems you know maybe almost like a bit of a reflex on on kind of bits and bits of the radical left which is this te- sort of technological determinist kind of stagist reading of history which you find i think rightly all over the the history of the marxist left certainly in europe and and i guess in its most innocuous form right that there's this this you know impulse to regard technology just as this kind of neutral thing that, that we can just take over by us um, when we overcome them uh so so what's the problem with this position I don't know how into the Marxological weeds we want to get here, but, um, you know, there's, there's a, historically, there's been this understanding, oh, there's a distinction between the forces of production, which uh, is, you know, technology, machines, fixed capital, um, 
and the relations of production, which is the, the class structure of society, right? And sometimes this this is like where the kind of base superstructure model kind of emerges from as well, right? So the idea that there's a the material stuff of like how things are made, and then there's like all the the stuff that people do, like as is this kind of separate sphere that's sort of epiphenomenal of that. And and so I think that's um that's not a good way to understand things. I don't think it's actually sustainable marxologically. There's a great uh essay by Donald McKenzie from the 80s, where he really gets into this. But um, the forces of production, you also have to think about um, things like uh, there's a human side to them as well, right? There are things like uh, the skill of workers is part of the forces of production. Um, How workers are arranged in productive processes are part of the forces of production. And so they're not kind of politically neutral, right? It's not like this neutral sphere of machines And then if we can tinker around with the relations of production to, for instance, have a different class structure where, you know, workers are owners or, you know, workers are managers instead of there being too, um, you know, I think you also have to think of the content of the forces of production because that also is something that relates to the class structure uh, of of a workplace, but also uh, society um, in a a larger sense, right? So so in that sense, right, there's, there's you know, there's a politics of the machine. Um, there's a way, and and if you look right, like management is often very explicit about this. So um, I look at uh, scientific management, right? Again, this is, you know, this is not um, something new to look at, right? Uh, Harry Braverman's work is the um, probably most extensive and kind of penetrating look at. Um, scientific management, Taylorism, um, named after Frederick Taylor, who was uh, kind of its, its uh, you know, who launched it onto the scene. Uh, there, it's very explicit. The, what we need to do is we need to rationalize productive processes so that people, so that the workers have less control, right? We need to use uh, both managerial techniques, but also technological apparatuses to separate workers from the knowledge of what they're doing, to remove their agency, and to put all information and all ability to plan uh, in the hands of management, right? To, to divide that. So you can't, so, so management is very clear. This is like a philosophy that's built, you know, the, the, it's kind of intellectual kernel is like politic, you know, technology is political. Technology has, uh, as there is part of, uh, class politics and therefore we're going to use it as our weapon. Marx is Marx himself, uh, you know, he's, uh, I describe him as kind of ambiguous on, on questions of technology. Uh, but one, one place where he's not very ambiguous is he describes, um, he says you could, you could, uh, describe all the machines, uh, developed since 1830, uh, as weapons to waged against proletarian organization, right? It's very unequivocal. He said, look, they, the reason that, you know, what, uh, where these machines come from is to break up existing forms of of worker organization, the ways that workers had organized themselves to give themselves some kind of autonomy, some some kind of power, some kind of leverage, and technology is used to break that up, right? So I think it's um, kind of a a historic mistake uh, that uh, the 
the, that technology was treated as neutral by some of the largest and most influential branches of, of the workers' movement and, and, and many of the, the biggest Marxist theoreticians, right? Um, this was like um, axiomatic for the Second International, right? We're going to develop the productive forces. Things will gradually build. Capitalist social relations will get bigger and bigger. More and more people will be kind of this proletarian subject. And eventually it'll be big enough that we will take power. Um, and it didn't work. Um, and uh, <laughs> I mean, it didn't work for, for, for many reasons, right? I don't want to say it's only because they got this one question yeah. wrong, but I think it was a problem and it was a liability. It can feel sometimes like that, that we get kind of arcane and Marxological and this stuff, but like it does matter and it yeah. matters because of the, the way that these things play out in practice. I mean, and I think there's a really brilliant example in the book where you talk about the impact that um, Taylorism has on the early Soviet Union, where you have this this kind of big conflict about the uses or, or, or misuses of scientific management. You know, on the one hand, you have, um, uh, you know, Lenin appears to be kind of ambiguous about it. You quote from this, I didn't know this guy, this uh, Gastev, who, who has this really monstrous uh, and kind of totally deadening sense of of what you can do like this kind of you know sublime of homogeny like it's really it's really yeah. it's sort of terrifying to to see but you know this this feeds back to me into thinking about like the the ways in which you know the, the these things aren't neutral because they produce all sorts of subjectivities that 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 feel much less you know empowered that feel much less kind of control or much less ability to act politically in the first place yeah, I think that's a, that's a that's a great way to put it. Yeah, I think it's I always love that Gastev, who's like this hard tailorizer, and and like he, I like the, the way you put the sublime, horrific sublime of he he really wants like the world to operate as like one integrated machine, uh, uh, which you know seems like some kind of cyberpunk horror, but is actually not miles <laughs> away from how many uh, kind of tech executives uh, might view things, right? Where we have this kind of perfect uh, globally coordinated production systems right that are that are automated and, and uh, in sort of uh, you know the, the the wildest ends of that is the you know the sort of transhumanists who want to kind of integrate their consciousness with the machines by uploading it to them I think it's it's telling to me that Gastev is originates as a poet as well so that I think you're you're right on there this the, he, he is thinking it like uh, in an aesthetic way, I think, in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, so it was, it, uh, I mean, what, what the, it's, it's important to me, right, that there's, that there are debates um, at various points, right? Like there are people recognize, right, maybe like the content of socialism in the process, the early years of the Soviet Union, when people really had to sit down and say, what are we doing here? Like right? what, we're doing something completely unprecedented. How, how are we going to go about this? Um, and people said, yeah, well, you, you know, if we want to have a society that's not capitalist, we can't just make things the way the capitalists do. Um, and I think they're, you know, ultimately, I think uh, sort of the uh, exigencies of history kind of won out on that. There was a desperate need to industrialize and to kind of uh, compete uh, with the capitalist world once it became clear uh, you know, the, 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 the revolution was not going to kind of go global uh, the way people anticipated. But, but yeah, there was, a, there was a kind of dissident tradition there. And, and I think that, um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that part of what I'm trying to do is, is excavate a kind of uh, alternative tradition in Marxism. Uh, at the same time, I'm not trying to bury um, the other one, right? I think that um, 
we're, we're, we're best as radicals when we have a good understanding of the stakes in all of these debates. And we see even the, the, the parts of our history that um, are, you know, we don't, we wouldn't have agreed with or, 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 or ended in tragedy uh, still as, as something that is actually a part of our history rather than saying it's some kind of like deviation. Um, because I think, you know, my version of a good socialist subjectivity or good radical subjectivity is, is, is someone, one who questions and debates and really um, tries to get at the core of these things. Um, so, so I, I appreciate, I appreciate your, um, you noticing that or picking up on that because to me that is quite um, uh, central to, to um, the thrust of this kind of project. Um, is to, to reconstruct these, these debates and to say, we have to, we have to, it's on the table. It's all on the table again. Let's, let's maybe we can spend some time with um, another kind of figure in sort of dissident Marxism, which is, you know, and, and maybe, and I think he gives us a way into thinking actually about the, the, the way these questions play out in kind of the contemporary technological moment. Um, and, and that's uh, Benjamin, because, you know, Benjamin is interesting because on, on the one hand, he's really, like, he's really, really interested in the way in which technology changes and really alters, you know, the, the kind of dominant, ways of thinking about art, you know, writes tremendously interestingly, wrongly, I think, but really interestingly wrongly, um, on, on the way that, that that kind of technology will change the way we approach um, sort of the value of a, a piece of art, the aesthetic value. Um, but he also has this, and, and you develop this in the book, this, the, he has this incredible and I think very timely critique of speed, of acceleration, of technological process. I think that speaks... You know, I don't think we're in the heyday of the love of speed and the love of acceleration anymore, but it's still really, really very prevalent on the re- on the left. And I think no more, you know, no, no more so than when the left starts talking about the potentials for technology. So ta- what's important about Benjamin's view? Yeah, so he strikes me as an exploratory writer. He's interested in really pursuing things rather than systematizing them all the time. So if you think about the work of art essay, right, he's... Uh, I don't know if I'd call him accelerationist, but he is really interested, like, okay, there's new potentials in new technologies. Maybe they'll be more egalitarian. Um, you know, this is like, it really does echo a lot of like early internet stuff, right? We're going to democratize the means of cultural production. Um, but for, for Benjamin, he thought it was through film and, and, and things like that. But at the end of his life, he's seeing a kind of catastrophe that has befallen, and not just the rise of fascism, but but the destruction of uh, German social democracy, which which had held such uh, promise, uh, and and very rapidly uh, is is uh, kind of dismantled. And so he he's thinking about what well, what went wrong, and he's saying like one problem was that workers felt like they were being swept along the tide of history. And this was something that, that that was definitely a major part of of the rhetoric in the Second International. Right, history has a structure. It has socialism is an inevitable outcome. Uh, you know, we are we are going to inherit the world. Uh, it's a, it is our destiny. Right, and that was uh, tremendously uh, motivating to people. Um, but it when it doesn't happen, when it doesn't go right, uh, uh, it goes very very wrong. Um, 
And so uh, what happened instead was they were caught flat-footed, is that, that history doesn't unfold in a sort of, um, you know, gradualist, linear manner. You have, uh, you have war and revolution that really caught them uh, unprepared uh, and fragmented this, the Second International. And part of the fragmentation there was this argument about linear progress and the development of productive forces, the idea that... Um, part of the the uh, reasoning behind uh, socialists supporting Germany in World War One and German socialists, rather than saying, "Look, this is an imperialist war and we have no part of it," uh, is that well, Russia was a is a less developed country, and so this is like it's a kind of semi feudal country, and it's going to actually set back our progress. We actually have to uh, take care of that problem. Um, as the leading, you know, let capitalism finish the job, and then, then, then we'll we'll enter things, right? And uh, you know, this continues. You know, Kautsky to the end of his life continues to criticize the Bolshevik Revolution uh, as like it's not going to work. You can't do it this way. It violates all the the laws of history that we know through Marxism. And I think that what Benjamin is saying is this is a this is a bad way to view history, right? That that. Um, um, rather than progress, right? And I think this is like really instructive as as people think, you know, write articles about Marx's view of capitalism and the bourgeoisie and how great they were, uh, which I, I think is hard to sustain if you read what he actually wrote about those folks, um, is that like they are the bearers of progress, a stage of history, and then we are, will inherit and bring it to the next level. Um, you know, might be a little bit of a revolution or something like that, but but this they're they're a necessary part of progress. And Benjamin's like, what if they're not part of progress, right? What if they're getting us further further um, away from from an egalitarian society? And and I think that's worth considering because uh, the outcome of the develop this development of capitalism was not socialism; it was fascism. Um, it was kind of something that was not really uh, anticipated well um, uh, by people at the time. And so he's saying this is not progress necessarily. What if it's actually catastrophe, catastrophe after catastrophe? Right? That's the history of capitalism. Is not a heroic one. It's uh, it's 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 a terrible one. It's a it's a history of misery of and of destruction, right? Of violence, um, and we have to take that seriously, right? We have to take that seriously as you know. This is the content of uh, of of capitalism and bourgeois relations. We have to take that seriously as that this is actually there's a material strata here uh, of of subject formation among workers that is rooted not in um, you know an inevitable heroic victory but in the memory of struggle of uh, of violence and of defeat um, and yet that those that 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 is precisely the resources of the classes who have nothing but um, their ability to work and perhaps also their ability to remember. So rather than see themselves um, as the next chapter of, of a progressive history, it might be more useful to say that these are the people who are going to stop such a history in its tracks, right? They will end this cycle of destruction and exploitation. What he says is they will throw, they will throw the emergency brake on the, the locomotive of progress, right? Um, and I really like that image of, uh, because it's it's quite it's it's a perfect metaphor to kind of um, as a criticism of accelerationism. You're throwing the brake is to decelerate, 
right? Um, so, um, and I, I think that is something, that's another thing that, that I'm really keen on uh, thinking through, right? That we have to see uh, this, it's, it's very hard. Uh, we, need to, we need to recognize the sort of violence and exploitation uh, that's inherent in, in these kinds of technological systems, accelerated by it, intensified by it. Um, and also think about that, you know, that's what our goal is. Our goal is not to take these machines and make, you know, redirect abundance, right? Um, but it's to stop. Uh, it's to stop the destruction. And I, to me, I, I mean, this is only, I'm, I'm not, this is not my, my, my forte. It's something I'm trying to learn more about because it's urgent. Uh, this, I think, it does resonate with, if you think about uh, environmental politics, right? They're, they're trying, right, to kind of, you know, we'll have technological solutions, carbon capture, uh, renewables, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's, to my knowledge, it's not it's not so, there's not very little reason to be optimistic about that. So rather than say we have to kind of progress to the next stage by, I don't know, building nuclear stations or, or coming up with um, moonshot technologies, right? Bill Gates is going to, uh, any day now, is going to start, uh, he's going to fill up all of your feeds uh, talking about these things. It's, he's already kind of laying the groundwork. Um we have to say what we're going to, what we need to do is we need to stop it. You know, we need to, we need to, we need to slow down. Um, and I think there are actually a lot of very interesting political movements in our contemporary moment that um, are, are thinking in those terms. And to me that, that um, uh, they, they're, they're kind of uh, what's really uh, exciting or, or give, giving me a bit of, of, of hope or, or something I agree with at least. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right that, that there's this, there's this question with like the 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 sort of technology stuff. I mean, I think you you describe it as as being like those kind of internet pop up ads with like the one weird trick uh, <laughs> to bring about um, total social change. And I, you know, I mean, like the, there are things that are obvious here, which are, are that you know the ways in which you know this stuff you know very often substitutes the development of of technology for kind of political struggle, right? Like technology will go and do the work of politics for us, right? I think that's that's really really common. We've talked a lot in, over the years on this show about automation, and I think most of the listeners to this will know that I'm really skeptical of lots of the claims for it. So I wonder if, rather than talk about automation directly, which I, I think you know, I, I think we probably agree quite strongly on, uh, I wonder if you might talk a bit more about the kind of computational side of things and the way in which this, you know, that there's a kind of neo luddism which grows up almost sort of intuitively and spontaneously. Um, you know, in the tech sector for a surprisingly, you know, it's been there for a surprisingly long time. Because I thought, so I thought it was interesting. And in, so you end the the book, uh, you end one chapter of the book by by talking about the, the you know, an example of Docker culture in San Francisco, and it, it's really striking because it's very similar in some ways to to some of the Weaver culture, um, you know, of of the Luddites. Uh, you know, this massive kind of flourishing autodidact creative culture. And then quite early in the subsequent chapter, you move on to this, uh, you know, to, 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 to the ways in which computerization, right, um, you know, which, which you point out grows up like really, you know, intertwined with the U.S. war machine and especially um, Vietnam. It leads to this kind of panoptic quality, like the, the informating um, of the work process, this kind of, which generates these reams of data, uh, you know, so, 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 so the kinds of control, even the kinds of kind of subjective relationship to work that the workers in the sector have that example of the dockers is, is certainly not thinkable really, I think, um, you know, under that sort of new regime. 
how does this sort of Luddite disposition grow up in technology and how much room is there for it today? Can we break the mainframe? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think there, there, the history of, of digital culture is very instructive on this. Um, one uh, kind of group I look at is, is, sort of, is, is hacker culture. Um, which I see as actually quite similar to the Luddites. Uh, you know, the Luddites who are kind of like skilled uh, craftspeople and artisans, uh, that is a good description of a lot of programmers. Um, they, you know, have quite a lot of autonomy. They have uh, quite a lot of skill that's in demand. They're well remunerated. They're often able to um, kind of cultivate themselves in creative and eccentric ways, which, um, you know, I, I I often find delightful. So how did they get there though? Why, why are they in such a privileged position and what is their real perspective on technology? Well, I think the easy way to see it is, well, they're hackers, right? They love computers. They love technology. They're building systems that, you know, that are controlling everyone else. So, you know, they're, they're kind of just paid off uh, kind of technicians of, of the ruling class or something. But if you actually get into the history of hacker hacking culture um, and a lot of the values that are still really central to, um, to a lot of programmers, you see something very different. You don't see technophilia. You see actually a uh, constant uh, kind of, of uh, warning about the developments of technology, particularly as it becomes uh, more and more controlled by corporations. The biggest battle where our high-tech Luddites of the hackers were victorious, and that continues to kind of inflect work in that sector, is the battle over copyright in software. So if you were an early programmer, you you learned it from someone else. You were or you were in a university context, but even those contexts were quite loose as far as who who participated. And you really learned it by like people sending each other programs, by looking at the code, by copying it, playing with it, um, and understanding it, right? Rather than like looking at a textbook or something like that. And so early software companies, uh, such as uh, Microsoft, in the 70s, when it was just a, a tiny company that, that, you know, rather than a household name, he sends this letter to these hobbyist clubs where people are learning to program. And he's like, you guys are just ripping us off. You're destroying the industry because you guys don't buy software. You make, you're, you're copying it and you're making it yourself, right? And it's a kind of symptomatic moment, right, where the people who want to turn software making into an industry really see, okay, what we have to do is we have to rely on um, certain kind of copyright protections, which will prevent people from doing the thing that is actually central to these hacker cultures, which is looking at the code, sharing it, copying it, et cetera. So they fight back. And the way they fight back is a very interesting way. They come up with their alternative uh intellectual property licenses that not only permit sharing, so if I make a program, I say, yeah, you, you can look at it, but also, very important, this addendum that if you use any component of my software, you have to also follow the same um, protocols that I'm following. You have to make your software open. So you can borrow from my code, uh, but you have to also, uh, you, whatever you make from that, you have to do the same. You have to make it available to other people. Um, and I'm not going to go through the whole history of free and open source software, but what this does is it creates an, it does a few things. It creates an, a completely alternative ecosystem of software um, uh, from, from, from Linux, from, from um, 
uh, Firefox, all of these are uh, outgrowths of the free and open source software movement. So viable software ecosystems, right? Programs that people can use for free, that they can customize, they can learn to program. Um, through these things. It also has some other really important knock-on effects, right? So not all of your listeners might be Linux users, right? Or, or Python experts, right? But the whole notion of that copyright and, and restriction of, of information and sharing is, is sort of anathema, uh, is kind of, uh, is, is cultivated in these digital cultures, right? So there's this disrespect for uh, certain forms of private property relations. And finally, what this does is the success of this software makes it so that Microsoft is not able to, for instance, have its own kind of proprietary coding language, right? This could have been a future that we that we ended up in where every tech company has had its own code, right? I mean, these are there's still projects to do it that way. And so you, if you work for Microsoft, you learn their language and then you're stuck. You have to keep working for Microsoft. It limits your uh, autonomy. So instead, we have uh, you know these uh, free free languages that um, are the standard. So if you learn them, you can do you can work in a variety of different contexts. You have a lot more mobility, and also these are easy for people, much easier to learn. You don't have to like do what some corporation says, right? You could imagine some site some kind of like program where like they agree to teach you and you agree to like sacrifice years of your life to them right i think that it's just, these are plans for the restructuring of uh the universities in in the u.s uh, will will those are some of the uh, kind of more dystopian uh, futures for that. But we didn't end up that way. Instead, we have the programmers were able to preserve uh, preserve themselves. Right? There was a kind of successful Luddite movement um, that worked by breaking copyright and also, uh, you know, and also, also other forms of agitation. Plenty of kind of um, propaganda and and manifestos and and things like that. Right? It's not perfect. It didn't overturn digital capitalism, but it has certainly created, I think, uh, a, a different kind of terrain um, that I think provides opportunities that otherwise might have been foreclosed many, many years ago. But this is what's so interesting, isn't it? Like the, the, the um, because I think you made the argument in the book that, that, um, to, to talk about the Luddites as, you know, the historical Luddites as being, you know, against the, the tide of history and, you know, fighting in vain against like the, the, the onward march of progress. Like it, it fails to see like the way in which even if those struggles appear to be defeated, that they shape the kind of totality, the historical totality that then arises. I think that's a really, really strong example of it. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think we need to get away from the idea that because something failed to instantiate full communism in the past, that it is some kind of dead end because everything has failed to do that. Uh, and many things have been tried. And I don't think that just because it has been tried and failed in the past, it's no longer worth thinking about or, or even uh, reconstructing. But uh, exactly as you say, uh, the contour of history is not a sort of steady progression of the productive forces. The contours of history are class struggle, the initiative of working people and oppressed people to resist power and how, however partial their victories are, it forces a kind of restructuring uh, or a different set of affairs uh, for capital. So yes, we live in a totally subsumed capitalist internet, 
uh, in spite of the continuing presence of free and open source software. But the way that capitalism has unfolded in that way uh, is precisely due to these earlier social struggles, right? And so I think that there's really important lessons to learn about, you know, what what our moment is. Um, and, and I think we also have to, again, we have to like be serious about, um, about our history and to kind of say, um, we can't only pick the side that wins all the time, uh, because that's ultimately, uh, that's not our side, but we've never lost totally. Right. Uh, so that's, I think, um, the perspective to have, I think, you know, if you, I, I'm sure you've seen you've been a part of debates uh, among people where you know it's like oh well the, they tried that and it didn't work because it's the kernel of failure is already in it and I think that that that's relying on this kind of determinism that I think is hard to sustain right there's a lot of contingency in history um, and it requires a, a sort of more granular kind of analysis to to this is I also I think why I'm interested in kind of these everyday struggles and practices. I feel like there's a lot of experimentation happening, right? We're not really sure what will generalize, right? The Marxist left uh, in Anglophone Marxist left has never been like bigger or more vibrant in my lifetime than it is right now. And there's still quite a lot that happens that uh, even though we we think we're looking very closely that we don't anticipate, right? And we have to be alive to the fact that yeah, we're we we're, we're there's quite a lot of experimentation in tactical experimentation, strategic experimentation, um, and rather than sort of condemn these things outright as uh, like they're Luddites, right? They're engaged in something that's doomed to fail from the beginning is to take it seriously and to, and to be to say what kind of victories or what kind of alterations uh, in, in the terrain of struggle emerge after these things, right? I don't think victory and defeat is always the, the best rubric to, to kind of interpret history, right? There's something you mentioned there about the the kind of total capitalist subsumption of of the internet, which I think is this is this is for me like the the most substantial technological change that I've experienced in my lifetime. Is because I'm you know I'm old enough just to remember we had a, a PC a, online fairly early. I remember the tone of dial up internet, <laughs> and and you know so the internet has changed massively in my lifetime, right? And you have mm-hmm. a formulation about um about the internet becoming this massive distributed machine for the for for capitalist production of value and the implications of that are, are, are vast and you know and and i think in some ways unexpected not necessarily foreseeable from say the mid 90s um and there are some really like fascinating details that you have, like the 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 example you use of uh, surgery students motor skills being impacted by like the ubiquity of swiping and clicking yeah um, so, so, and and I think then more generally we have this question of the kind of way in which these technologies just colonize every you know moment or aspect, every kind of second of free time with the possibility of work. Um, and so, so like lots of kind of the most celebrated contemporary digital theorists have described this change as a really fundamental break um, in in kind of social order and economic order in in capitalist order. Um, you know, almost a new mode. Is it really so new? Yeah. So, I mean, you have, uh, for instance, uh, Shoshana Zuboff's surveillance capitalism, and she, she does make that argument, right? She said, this is, uh, I, I, I think she, she uses, I saw a statistic, she uses the word unprecedented, like every five pages, and it's a, it's a 700 page book. So that's quite a lot. Um, <laughs> it is a, certainly a question I think quite a lot about, and I don't know if I um, have a firm conclusion on it. Um, I don't know if I could say it's a new mode of production. I think that what you see is an intensification of several dynamics that were already kind of present in 
in capitalism, like the imperative for surveillance, right? This, that that she makes so much of, and 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 in fact, I, her her book from the eighties, uh, uh, where she looks at the introduction of computers into industrial labor processes, as a fantastic book, an important book. She's not a Marxist, but she she's she's very observant, and she's um, and she gets a lot right. I think in that book. Um, so what are they doing? Well, they're they're using they're introducing computers into factory processes, and they're accumulating data out of these factory processes, and they're using it as a tool of management. They're rationalizing pro- productive processes. They're using it in like bargaining situations where they can say, "Well, actually, no, you you know you didn't do the thing you're supposed to do, right? Uh, you know, you guys are not doing the things that management said, and we know because we have the statistical readout that says such." Um, and and she also uh, notes she's she draws on Foucault, you know, this is like, Foucault has just entered uh, the English Language Academy at this time that she's writing, and she's read him, and she's, she's using him in a good way. She's saying it's affecting the worker subjectivity, right? They're, 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 dis- they're feeling watched, and they're, they're disciplining themselves. Um, so, um, so, and, and you, those dynamics stretch even earlier than, than the 1980s, when she's, she's doing her ethnography, right? I mean, Taylorism itself is, is, uh, premised on careful observation of the workers, right, of their movements um, and and uh, how long they're taking to do something, right. Now, all of course, all of our behavior is tracked in this way. So, in rather than a sort of uh, break, I, I see that as a kind of intensification, right, or a proliferation, maybe of. Uh, of a dynamic that I think is present in the capitalist mode of production is you want to you have to you know know exactly what your workers are doing all the time. Henry Ford in the 1920s has his sociological department, which is visiting workers in their homes to make sure that they are you know not drinking, that they are uh, speaking English rather than uh, their native language. Many of the, his workers were immigrants, uh, and and all sorts of things. Right, he wanted them to be moral subjects. He was he 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 was you know obsessed with this actually right he knew that this was like these were the people that would you know stay on the line and 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 be good workers you had to discipline them and get them into shape right so we so if if we see that those dynamics happening in things like social media um, and 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 this is what what Zuboff writes about, right? She's saying, well, now we have th- this extractive d- uh, environment where where companies are taking their this data from you and they're giving you nothing in return, right? She's she's very clearly kind of nostalgic for uh, you know a Fordist moment where uh, or the 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 idealized Fordist moment of there was a fair compact between labor and capital and mutual benefit, right? Um, if that famous graph, right, where productivity and wages are going up at the same time and they diverge, right? And that's that's your that's your neoliberalism in one graph, right? Um, so I, I'm not nostalgic for Fordism. Um, and I actually think that um, you see a lot of those dynamics and she herself saw them as well, right? So that's why it's so disappointing, I think, that she kind of takes this tack. I think there are like really clear, uh, significant developments, right? You have um, sort of massive monopolization of what has become kind of um, basically critical infrastructure of contemporary societies, right? Uh, By uh, corporations who are run by, in many cases, like men of, of, who are not that that not even that clever, right? It's just like they 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 stumbled into it, right? Um, and um, and 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 certainly don't have any sort of like interesting egalitarian hope for this, right? Mark Zuckerberg's like connecting people. Connection is always good. <laughs> that's that's all I got. That's my philosophy. <laughs> um, so um, 
so 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 they these these companies are kind of assuming the mantle of a sort of a critical critical social infrastructure uh whether it comes to communications um when it comes to um you know culture right like how how we're watching and and enjoying and um how we're uh, uh meeting one another right and and this is really significant because it is i think uh, I think it's fair to say, uh, without kind of going to the extremes of Zuboff, who is who claims right that these companies have the power to determine your behavior, right? Like she had an editorial in the New York Times saying like the Capitol insurrection was a direct result of Facebook because she has a kind of um, behaviorist understanding, which some of these companies, at least in their origins, also had, right? She kind of takes that at face value, and I think what. What I don't like about that, I don't, I, I don't think we should underestimate the power of these companies uh, and the way that they have restructured our behaviors uh, and rationalized them to produce data. I really like um, the kind of fundamental sort of motivating insight um, in Richard Seymour's uh, recent book, The Twittering Machine. It's such a simple observation and yet so important. It's like the internet is a machine to make you write. And everything kind of flows, all the analysis kind of flows from there, right? So what is writing? Um, it's a way of creating ourselves. It's also a way of objectifying ourselves, right? Um, and and it causes us to write in a particular way, right? Um, and so um, so I think that is, uh, and, and that does kind of have an effect on our subjectivity. I don't think it's like a deterministic uh, one uh, that, that Zuboff has, or if um, a lot of my students... Uh, like this uh, recent Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, which again, it's this um, guy from the tech world who's kind of like uh, Dr. Frankenstein. What have I unleashed? Right? I've, I've just, I've, you know, uh, it's a monster that I've, I've uh, unleashed on society that's causing people to do things. Well, it's kind of also self-aggrandizing, right? You're, oh, you're, a, you're, you're an evil genius. You're, but you're repentant now. But oh, your, your creation was just too powerful. Um, I think that there's quite a lot of. Uh, agency for people to use a kind of old-fashioned term, right? Um, that 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 people do resist. That people there's widespread dissatisfaction with these platforms, um, and that dissatisfaction is even being felt at the levels of policy. Uh, both in the U.S., both both parties are critical of Silicon Valley in very different ways and, and perhaps in opportunistic ways. Uh, but I think it registers a, a widespread dissatisfaction with the kind of current state of things. And I think if you talk to anyone, no, very few people, uh, I'm trying to think if anyone has ever said it to me, oh, I love Facebook. It's it's so great. I just love it. It's really improving my life. You know, <laughs> I think if I'm honest, I can identify <laughs> some aspects of Facebook that I do like. As you noted, I credit a Facebook group, discussion group I'm a part of, that I feel was really important in my um, intellectual progression in this work. Um, and yet, the, there's, it's very hard to find uh, the kind of techno-utopianism that was extremely common uh, in just maybe just 10 years ago. Uh, I think the only places you really find it now are um, in cryptocurrency. And that's because, you know, people are running pyramid schemes you know you have to you have to get people to you have to get people to kind of irrationally believe in progress right that that line goes up right um so um so but but i think if you look more generally people people are very unhappy with the way things are going and governments are, are starting to move and i think there's um 
a lot of potential there. Yeah, I mean, I guess like you know, just to move towards my final question, really is is you know because the insidious stuff here, I think you know, as you say, it is worth talking about. And it was so interesting, you know. Yeah, I, there are a couple of Facebook groups that are discussion groups that I value. They would also have been fine as Usenet groups, right? Sure. Um, I mean, yeah. that, and that's the stuff that, that's really interesting is this kind of enclosure stuff there. I, I suppose you have a you have a a kind of very brief reference, I think, to the the, the sort of subtler forms of conditioning, you know, towards passivity and the way that subjectivities yeah. form around technology. Um, and and obviously, you know, this sometimes puts me in mind of Adorno. It sometimes puts me in mind of like because I think the risk here is like as you also note, there's there's this like tech clash is now like an established part of Silicon Valley mindset. Right. I mean, there's a really lucrative speaking circuit if you would like just on the inside of that and also kind of a, a court critic, as it were. Right. Let's say we're, we're not kind of believers in the kind of plate glass silicon utopia. We're also suspicious of the kind of sherry turkleism, uh, you know, tech lash is bad, like get your kids off screens. We don't think it's enough, maybe like this kind of insipid neoliberal sort of human connectionism stuff. Um, so, so where do we look for the the kind of neo luddite politics? You sketched this towards the end of the book, right? That there's some deceleration. There's maybe the rearticulation of these themes of sort of autonomy of control. Do you see these as being like materially instantiated anywhere? Are they, you know, are they are these demands being manifested? Um, at the moment, uh, you know, where are the flashpoints? Yeah, I think um, you still see uh, flashpoints over open source software. There's a recent fascinating kind of case of farmers. Uh, so, so this kind of computerization and creating more and more kind of proprietary black boxes has not stopped, right? And and now it's at the level of you know devices that previously had you know you didn't need a computer attached to them; they were just mechanical devices. So you have um, farmers, you know, in the U.S. Um, they have the latest John Deere tractor. Well, that tractor has a computer system, uh, and it purports to you know aid in monitoring the soil and 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 provide you know farmers with up to date data right um that's which is of course what they need um but what it also does is it prevents farmers from uh, fixing their uh, tractors except to, unless they go through the approved John Deere uh you know uh, uh licensed mechanic right um who essentially will charge you like 150 bucks to Put a USB in that authorizes him to change out the part. So um, there's a there's a movement that um, is has actually had some recent victories uh, in the UK and, and has some strong supporters in the US called the Right to Repair movement. Uh, and I like that for a few reasons. Uh, one is it recognizes right that we are that we we need to have some kind of autonomy over our machines, but also that you know when we when we repair things and we learn to fix things ourselves, right? We 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 gain a kind of skill, we gain a kind of of, uh, of feeling of mastery over our environments, right? This this idea that everything is going to be done for us uh, is, I think, immobilizing. It's what a uh, philosopher uh, here in the Netherlands, uh, Nolan Gertz, a uh, fellow American in the Netherlands, uh, describes as nihilism, right? He, he, he writes about all the ways that technology engenders just like well, I, there's nothing I can do. It's going to be done for me or it's not. Um, and I have no, no power here. Um, so in, in this case, right, what are the farmers doing? Well, they're actually trying to, they're downloading like hacked and pirated 
and cracked software packages, right? Like this is what I would do in the like the late nineties. Yeah. Um, and you and installing those and in, you know they're often coming from like uh, like Estonian message boards and things like that. Um, and 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 installing those so that they can fix the tractors themselves. So I think th- this is something that I think is really valuable to me. That this idea that we need to learn technologies ourselves so that we have a kind of say over them, so we understand them and we understand the politics of them. Right. I I, I don't claim to be like the most um, you know, I'm not a hacker. I'm not like a, the most technologically skilled person, but I think I've often learned quite a lot from people who are people who really understand the stakes of that. And it's something that I think we want to kind of generalize. Um, related to this is recognizing that there's a, an, a, we need to value uh, different kinds of approaches to technology other than sort of like innovation and progress, right? Um, is that um, we have a lot of systems that require, uh, that you know, rather than disruption, that require maintenance, right? We have to maintain the world around us, and I think there there there's some kind of implicit ecological values in this as well. Um, so so I've been reading some some scholars, and they they had this very interesting conference series called the Maintainers, where they had sort of academics in science and technology studies, but they also had like elevator repairmen uh, come in and kind of talk about, you know, what, what their what their work is like. And I think we can think about different forms of work and different values um, at work. And I think that that is also something, it's not, um, you know, necessarily uh, getting us to the barricades, but I think it's, it's uh, essential to reconceptualizing what it our a relationship between work and technology um, and and valuing certain kinds of work right um, as as necessary um, so um, uh, there's also I think you know a, a lot of uh, interesting heterodox economics that have been um, coming out since the financial crisis that have been very educational um, I'm very interested in people working in what's called degrowth I don't know if I'm such a fan of the term, but because I think it, but it is provocative, right? So I think it gets people thinking. Uh, but basically to say the abundance of commodities is not necessarily the best gauge of uh, of progress, of happiness, uh, of wellness, of any of these things. In fact, it can actually be harmful to many of those things and, uh, and also is uh, ecologically unsustainable. So can we really rethink how we organize an economy uh, along other kinds of values, right? And to me, that is like, kind of eminently sort of socialist, right? Or eminently at least anti-capitalist, right? To, to, to say we have, how would we, un, how would we restructure an economy along completely different values, right? If we're just trying to generalize like capitalist values of accumulation and abundance, uh, and, but we can get it to everyone, then I don't really, that doesn't seem to really be the kind of qualitative change, right? Uh, that I think um, a, a sort of radical anti-capitalism uh, would call for. Um, and I do see some of that happening um, in in the the people working on degrowth. And so something, again, I'm just starting to kind of look at some of that stuff, but I find it quite fascinating and, and uh, quite interesting, right? That uh, these are people that are, that are in, in many ways asking us to slow down. I think even more mundane kind of things, uh, there's the, you know, I, it's, it's so simple, but it's so clear to me that people just need to 
work less. Um, <laughs> we just need to reduce hours, right? Um, we thought uh, there was a, there was a, there was this idea that for a long time there, that this was also a steady progress, right? So Keynes predicted uh, back in 1930 that by now we'd be working 10 or 15 hours a week. Um, and kind of the problem with a lot of those predictions was it, it was directly attached to new forms of technology, right? Um, it turns out that that actually we've had all sorts of wonderful technology, and guess what? We're we're working more than 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 people were. Uh, a, a couple generations ago, and we're, we're we're working more for less, but I think we could work less, right? Um, uh, to to slow things down, right? And reduction of working hours seems to be very practical. There's actually some really. Uh, Beautiful research uh, coming out of the UK, the Autonomy Think Tank, and some other places that um, I, th I think is really compelling. Um, and uh, to me, it seems very simple. It's it's actually unlike a lot of the things I think are good. It's traditionally been a union demand. Uh, so. Um, so, so there's potential there, right? And and I think, uh, in particular, when when everyone is living in this Zoom world, or or if they're not in the Zoom world, they're in the gig economy world, where where work is is uh, just exhausting, um, where you have no time or energy to do the things in life that are enjoyable to you. Um, that this is maybe a demand uh, that is very clear that could um, be on the agenda. I was just watching. Uh, Peter Watkins' uh, film on the Paris Commune last night, and it's the the workers of Paris, the oppressed masses of Paris, just keep saying, you know, we want to have lives just as good as everyone else's. We want to have all the things that you have. We want to think. We want to eat. We want to raise our families. Um, and we we don't have time. We don't have the resources. Uh, we're working too much. We're working too hard. And we and we want we want to have those things too. And uh, it was just kind of a, a beautiful thing to see too, because it's like it's like so resonant uh, in our in our current moment, right? That um, that there are so many good reasons to do that. Uh, uh, so I encourage people listening. You know, check out check out some of the um, very well designed uh, kind of uh, pamphlets and and reports coming out of Autonomy on uh, reduction of work. I think they're very compelling great i think that's a perfect place for us to leave it gavin thank you so much that's this has been a really brilliant conversation well thank you james i've um been a follower of of you and novaras for for many years so it's uh really gratifying to uh to come here and to talk to you um and uh i thank you and i thank uh all your listeners as well that's it for this week my thanks to gavin whose book breaking things at work is out now from verso books and why don't you let that question occupy your thoughts over the coming easter break how might you take up sabotage do let me know i'm intrigued thanks for listening stay locked here on resonance 104.4 fm i have been and will continue to be james butler this has been navara fm bye-bye This broadcast, like all the cornucopia of content you can get at Navarra Media, is only possible through the small donations of hundreds of people like you. Join them. Go to navarra.media support. Thank you.